Welcome to episode eight of season three of Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-hosts, who I'm staring at virtually. It's quite a sight. Mr. <laughs> Peter Crable. Some, something to see right now, isn't it? How you doing, Mr. Crabes? I'm doing all right, man. This is new and not so great, but here we are. Mr. Sidden. Hey. How it's are good you, to see man? you. I'm, right, well, uh, I'm I'm going with a sp- split screen, so I might not be looking directly at you, which is weird. <laughs> it's a little disconcerting. All right, I'll change it. Face. I'll change it back. I'll change it back. All right, folks. Well, Ed's Not Dead is back. It's been a long time uh, since we've been on the air. We're, we're still tuning in to the show. Uh, the landscape of the world has changed significantly, right, fellas, since the last we recorded? Every Defense. single day. COVID-19 has uh, forced us to remotely record, but we're still we're still in the game. We're still here. Talk about important educational issues. You're stuck with us. <laughs> As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. So we had a couple different uh, recording sessions set up, and then both times – as COVID-19 was ramping up, I freaked out and canceled both because uh, I didn't want either one of you in my house. <laughs> in retrospect, it was probably for the best. It was I a, know, it was a good idea, and, and I had I had kind of wanted to cancel it, but then Robbie went ahead and canceled it. I was like, oh, good. I have an out. That's good. Wait, do, well, don't you know the strategy is if you're even thinking about canceling like 3%, the Robbie factor is like times 10 <laughs> that he's going to cancel. That's true. That's very so true. you just wait. You just wait him out. <laughs> Have you also seen the um, kind of the the scope and sequence of how it works? Like the day before we're we're going to record, I'm all in and yeah. excited. You're like, oh, let's do this. Seven thirty. I'm getting sandwiches. Yeah. Anytime then, you're too excited, I'm like, oh, we're screwed, man. <laughs> this is not happening. And then you get the text the next morning that that's that's ambivalent. <laughs> I don't know, guys. I, just I don't, don't know, fellas. I just don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, I, I appreciate you all figuring out how to do this remotely. I miss having you in the in the Dodd recording studio downstairs. Same here. Uh, you can, yeah, you can find us uh, at Ed's Not Dead PC or check us out online at edsnotdead.com, our website. So we have a great show tonight. We are going to talk things, um, all things COVID-19 and the impact on education, which is uh, other than public health, has maybe been one of the most significant impacts in the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we do that, let's do our typical thing where we get into show feedback. Mr. Crable, you got any you got any exciting news for I us? Do, about, I do have about some exciting END. Yeah. I don't even know if Casey knows this, uh, but Mr. I'm sorry, Doctor Robert Dodd, MD, DDS, uh, <laughs> and I, Mr. Crable. We were recently interviewed by uh, Johns Hopkins Alumni Magazine. Oh, wow. Well, well, oh. <laughs> Excuse me. That's that's jealousy talking. I or, didn't, uh, I didn't know. A, I didn't know I was invited. On me and Dr. Dot's podcast. Wow. <laughs> wow. That was that was conjured up from Dr. Dodd for not being included in, in alphabetical order on the AMLE magazine article. That is true. There was a even though I had of, nothing to do with it. A little bit of karma there. <laughs> this is and this is why you have three kids. So somebody two always team up against the other. I know. Somebody's I was always got to feel left out. It's all about the alliances. <laughs> 
So this was it was your turn. I, I have to, Crable. Didn't you feel like when we would have to kind of speak about the podcast during the interview with Heather Salerno from HB Media? By the way, she did a great job. We appreciate her interviewing us. When we would mention Casey, uh, it it felt really awkward, didn't it? Yeah, it's almost like we we shouldn't have been mentioning him because <laughs> it was a Johns Hopkins alumni <laughs> interview. Listen. Uh, but we did we did throw his name in there, and, and we have seen a draft, uh, and his name did make it in there. My name we did. Made, yeah, we made sure to spell it incorrectly so that you at least <laughs> at least you knew your place. Jesus, <laughs> it, it, it it we did mention you quite a bit, Mister. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I'm the glad. Other co-hosts, <laughs> yeah, uh, the co-hosts we who shall not be named. We were excited and. Uh, Heather Salerno gave END a lot of love in her yeah. in her short piece about the show. So, props to Heather. Thank thanks to Hopkins for interviewing us. And I'm sure the next time we have one of these END specials, I'll be left out. Um, <laughs> so, or maybe it's Cra- it's Crable's turn. I think. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I but see if you're always on the attack, then you never get left. Out. <laughs> That's true, and you, yeah. and you're typically the one that sets all this stuff up. That's so, true. There you go. There you go. Um, any other any other show notes or feedback, Mr. Sids? What do you got? Anybody reached out to you on the interweb about the show and in, in, in this dark time of us not being out there? No, I mean not, nothing big. Just because I think uh, the media has been sucking up all the attention with, uh, rightly so, with with what's going on with all of our schools and communities. So not too much. But I do know that we had a, a spike in listens from our last episode just a month ago. So that's exciting. Yeah, people are still out there, and I think, you know, we talked a little bit about it before we started recording. Um, you know, I was like, ah, do it, don't do it. I mean, I think people are so saturated with, with the other news that yeah. is very real and very serious and, you know, certainly not downplaying at all that um, it is nice to have a, a place or a space like this. Yeah. You know, we're still talking about COVID and coronavirus and all that, but it's certainly from a pretty different angle. More of like, I think, what a lot of parents especially are living these yes. days. Um, you know, being home with their kids and their kids not being with friends and kind of all the, you know, the various uh, impacts of that on everybody and just everyday life in general. When I, when I feed Frida in the morning at 5.30 and 6 in the morning, I usually watch the local NBC channel first thing in the morning and it's like Corona Watch for like a good 45 minutes before anything good happens. And then, so I just switched and every morning I've been doing dual lingo. Uh, as I'm feeding, so I've been learning what you, Spanish. What are you learning? Espanol. Oh, very nice. Right. You want to practica? I don't know what that says, but I'm pra- <laughs> I'm practicing it. Yes. Okay. I'm trying. Good. You, good. You, know, you know that's the funny Spanish story that that when we first hired Crable, um, <laughs> way way back in 2012, uh-huh. he he told us that he was bilingual. Yeah. And. and um, in the four years that I worked with him, I never heard him use a live Spanish <laughs> once with a with a native Spanish speaker in our school. <laughs> he kept it. I, see, he so didn't I want people still, to know. I, I, he didn't want people to know because then he would have to commit to something. He like would have to do. He would have to do like translations or something. Uh, I did plenty of Spanish. I think you just had to leave your office in order to hear it. Oh, <laughs> ouch. ouch! That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's a that's a new that's a book we should put out. Leading from the office. <laughs> I'm still doing that. Tel- telephone leadership. Telephone leadership. <laughs> Zoom leadership. 
I was I I I was very visible. <laughs> I you was were very visible. <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. Anyway, all right. Uh, all right. So let's pivot into coronavirus and the impact on education. Um, personally, last week I started the Dodd Academy, and I retitled myself as Dean Dodd. Um, <laughs> Dean Dodd. And I, my 11-year-old has uh, been a very willing and compliant student, and my 16-year-old, not so much. We're lucky if he gets up every day by 11 and gets going. <laughs> so this has had a huge impact on student learning, on parenting. Um, I think the last time I checked, and this is a little bit old, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but as of five days ago, I think over half of school-aged children in the United States were not in school. Yeah. Um, just recently, North Carolina and the state of Virginia have closed for the remainder of the school year. Um, so our home Kansas state of is closed. Who else is closed? Kansas is closed until the end of the school year. Yeah, I think they were the first to close yep. permanently. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I guess more dominoes will fall and, and, yes. and more systems and more states will close. So assuming that most, if not all districts are out of school for an extended amount of time, um, <clears throat> you guys think teaching and learning, and then I guess related school supervision looks like from a district and school level going forward, how is this going to work? I, I think... The one thing I wanted to say that when my neighbors come and talk to me from across the street and we talk about things like this, I would like to say that uh, whether you're in an affluent district with one-to-one iPads or you have already, you know, you have systems in place, learning management systems in place, school districts by and large are not ready for this. They're not ready for the impact on long-term kids being out, teachers being out. I, I think by and large teachers, schools, they're just not ready to, and students are not ready to handle what what could be a very long-term closure. We'll, they'll be able to pivot and mold to the occasion, but I think as a, as a school system at large, we're not ready for it. Yeah, and I mean, to, to be fair, I don't think... Good reason we're not ready for. Yeah, it's not. I'm not impugning the integrity of systems. I'm just saying we're just not there. Not nearly where maybe we would think that we would be, given all the right. technology in schools. You know, and certainly one aspect of it that has become pretty clear is is we're doing right now. You know, is the online aspect of it, mm-hmm. and whether that's Zoom classrooms or you know Google Hangouts, or whether that's pre-recorded teacher videos. Or whether that's electronic packets right. or Google Classroom. I mean, you know, pick and choose whatever you want um, in terms of like how the information is getting out there. But that's what it's going to look like. And I think one of the interesting aspects that we have spoken about on the show has been kind of like the farming out of um, instruction to computers and robots, for lack of a better term, and how primarily, by and large, um, it has been. Uh, lower achieving students, um, who have done that already, right. You know, they, you know, they're below reading level. And so they're assigned a technology based reading program in order to catch them up. And so I think 
ready or not, like it or not, we're going to about to embark on a huge experiment as to the effectiveness of online learning and what it does and how students learn from it. Yep. All right. So, so let me hit you with two ideas. Um, you guys are totally sick of me quoting John Meyer from Stanford and his theory of new institutionalism. Is, is this related to his Bendurian triangle? <laughs> no, but uh, I did use it in my dissertation. Oh, good. And one thing that I've one thing that I've wondered about is, um, you know, organizations tend to copy one another, right? There's not a lot of variance across K-12 education in the country. Right. Things are mostly done the same way, K-5 to 6-8 to 9-12, right? By and large, yeah. Um, so my guess is, is that somebody is going to figure out a way to do this well, yeah. or at least efficiently, and then uh, that's going to be the model. So that's that's the first thing I've thought about. And then the second thing I've thought about, too, is that both in the private sector and the public sector, institutions uh, inherently do not like changing, right? right? <clears throat> and, and, the, and switching costs are, exp- are expensive. Well... Education just got the impetus to switch, yeah, and, and the costs are 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 paid for, and it's going to happen, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think that that's a really interesting kind of concept here that the that this would have probably never happened, or at least happened over many decades, yeah. yeah. And, and now we don't have to worry about the switching cost because we have to do it, right? And um, I'm going to be curious to see how these habits or these new routines, how they stick yeah, um, and, and, and whether they become the new normal. And I think to your first point, and um, one thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit has been, and it's going to come across as like very anti-technology, which I've, you know, come and gone on, on that thought throughout the show in, in the years, but you're talking about somebody figuring out how to do it and how to do it well. And we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, the last decade, certainly more and more integration of, of technology into education. And I think not always for good reason and not always with tangible results, but certainly a lot of money to be made there. And what worries me is that we're going to go down that same path and everybody's going to be looking for an answer and we're going to find somebody that sells it the best Mm-hmm. And then they're going to become like the savior and we're all just going to be pouring all this money into whoever it is. And if they really, maybe they don't know anything about education. It just happened to be the right flavor of the month at the right time for where we are now. Um, and that worries me a little bit to kind of be ceding some of the space to Silicon Valley mm. as opposed to, well, I don't know, as opposed to who just in general to Silicon Valley, because I don't think they have um, best interests at heart. I think they have profits at heart. Well, what I was going to say to you, Crable, is when you when you first started talking about that, you said somebody's going to figure out how to do it well. Well is not necessarily a part of this. They're going to figure out how to do it. Right. Do it, yeah. and, and it's going to be for the bulk of kids, not correct. for all kids. Correct. And, and, and as you said, you know um, – There'll, there'll be these isomorphic tendencies where schools will 
or organizations will kind of collapse and become, they'll, they'll just take that one model, like you said, because it's efficient or because it's easiest. It's there. It's there. Um, and, and I, and I think over time we won't see a lot of variance in how schools do it. Um, but at the same time, we're at this like inflection point of that hasn't been decided yet. So everybody's <laughs> kind of grasping and that's fascinating to me. Right. And in, to your second point about institutionalism and what that ends up looking like, you know, I, I do think we're in a scramble to the finish line in the finish line being the end of the year. And it's just going to be whatever school districts can do to get by and how they can get there. And, you know, just everybody's doing their best. Um, but the the really interesting point will be between now and let, let's just say next September, next Labor Day, when school districts do get some time to sit back and think and go, okay, wow, that was incredibly disruptive. We weren't ready for it, but this is how we dealt with it. What did we learn? What changes that we were forced to make do we want to continue to keep? And, and what do we want to scrap because it didn't work? And I do think that that is a really interesting and, and potentially hopeful time where you can make some pretty sweeping changes in education that maybe, um, you know, institutionalism has resisted. I don't yeah. know what they are off the top of my head, but I'm excited and interested to see what they are. Well, I, and I think to your, to back in the question when we mentioned supervision, I wonder how trying to adapt on the fly here has flattened organizations a little bit. My guess is, is all across the nation, there are groups of teachers and principals and central office folks that are now in the same arena trying to, trying to solve a problem together. Um, whereas in the past, that, you know, those, those groups are fairly distinct most of the time and only come together in kind of you know, very structured, traditional ways. But now they're having to collaborate virtually because they can't get together. Um, and, and ideas are being thrown out there uh, that, that are probably pretty innovative. So I wonder how that will change you know, school systems as organizations, um, having, having more people at the table to talk about how to do this. In terms of the infrastructure, there's a wide disparity in terms of who has access and what they have access to, whether it's in terms of internet access or computer access. If you have a family of four in a house um, and you have one computer, typically families have one, maybe two computers, um, that, that limits your access even if you have the internet access. Um, I would argue that families, a lot of families don't. They have phones. Phones is the primary. No, I, I, I agree, but they, by and large, people will have one, maybe two computers laying around. It might not be the most up-to-date one. And then the other piece is there's 21 million Americans who don't have access to broadband internet, which severely hampers any kind of quality. No, it, it hampers completely any kind of video teleconference with a, a teacher or a professor or any kind of, even YouTube, trying to access YouTube videos you wouldn't be able to access without broadband internet. And well, this does, is, this, does this allow the federal government to, to, <clears throat> no. to stick no. it to, the, to those companies to, to change the way they operate? I mean, No, they would never, this, this administration will never. This administration will not do that. Do. The, but Obama but, tried, Obama administration did try to bring in infrastructure uh, in terms of the infrastructure bill that they have every week or every year, once a week, infrastructure week. And uh, <laughs> usually they're, they're, they're shot down. So, 
But what what I was going to say um, in terms of like an inflection point about what happens last episode, Robbie, you talked a lot about um, the private sector and sort of like their skin in the game. And yeah. certainly in the, in the short term, um, you do see a lot of internet providers um, providing free internet access yeah. because they do know that there are so many students out there that don't have access that we're going to be online learning. That's what's going to be happening. Um, and that, so they are stepping in now, does that stay? How long does that stay for? You know, that's the big question. Um, but kind of like once, once they get hooked, you know, maybe they bring down their prices or maybe they have a tiered pricing system plan, or maybe that is one of the things that changes. And well, typically typically have, most, most cable and internet companies have discounted options or, uh, options based on salary or low income folks. Uh, but it's very hard to find on their website. It's very challenging to even get that kind of communication from the companies themselves because they don't want to let it let it happen or let it be widespread or known that it's actually available. And then at the end of the day, the, just like they do with everybody else, they rise their prices or raise their prices as time goes on because they have you locked in to their services. All right, so let's let's talk about teaching and learning, um, and specifically online distance learning. So are you planning, Dr. Dodd, are you planning on doing like informal and formal observations at homes? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I thought about that this morning when I was talking to fellow administrators. Um, I mean, I guess for college, uh, for, for national board certification, you uploaded videos, right, Mr. Siddons, and were evaluated for board certification based on that? But yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, that's possible. I'm not sure in the short term as we're trying to pivot to distance learning that that'll be a high priority. No, I'm just, I was being facetious, but I know, and I was, I was. <laughs> you were trying to pivot. I saw, <laughs> I saw this picture. Back. I saw this picture on Twitter of a administrator knocking on this a friend's door, their 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 glass door in the front of their house, and it said that had a note on the front that said, "I'm here for your informal teacher." Uh, evaluation or something like that. So they're trying to bring levity to the situation, you know. Uh, that is, that's a good one. You got to send that to me. All right. So is distance learning, what are the implications for all age groups? We know that schools in this country are primarily divided by into three levels, elementary, middle, and high school. Um, how is this going to work developmentally for uh, kids that are learning to read in kindergarten uh, to kids in middle school who are early adolescents and need those non-parental adults more than ever, and then kids in high school that you know can be fairly self-directed. If 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 I can just start with a broad brush, as I like to do, th- this online this um, urgent need for distance learning is going to vastly. Um, expand the opportunity gaps and achievement gaps that are currently existing in schools. And we're getting close to the summer break, which is the summer brain drain, and it is going to exponentially uh, impact negatively student learning from, from the students who are already impacted in a really, really negative way. That is so gloom and doom. <laughs> I, 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 well, we got to start somewhere. I, I, I think for the, for, let's say for a vast majority of kids, you know, they're going to be able to get there. They're going to be able to do the learning that is communicated from schools and they'll be able to, you know, I'm in quotation marks, do the learning, do their worksheets, 
do the activities that are asked of them in the textbooks that are provided online. But the, the, the thing that we talk about least are the students who are served the least in our schools today. And they're, they're going to be left behind even further with this, with this um, coronavirus issue. I tend to agree with you, but let me play devil's advocate just for a minute here. So let's no say no expectation. <laughs> no, 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 it's called reality, Doctor God. <laughs> no, that's what not. they. All, that's what they all say. Anyway, um, so let me play devil's advocate and say, okay, so you have a student who is disengaged from school, like in a, in a normal whatever environment, and they complete some work. They don't complete a lot of work. And as the quarter goes on, you start pulling them, you know, before school, lunch, after school, whatever, during class to make up assignments. Tell me if either of you have ever seen this, where a student has completed enough work in two hours to move their grade from a D to a B. Of course. You ever, you ever seen that? Of course. My, my son does it every quarter. <laughs> right. So my point is... If you look at the actual amount of time that is required of students to complete work in assignments that are graded, it's actually not that much. Mm -hmm. Now, there is all the – yes, there's all the teaching that goes along with it. There's the collaboration. There's the working with other classmates. There's um, asking questions. There's higher order thinking skills. All that stuff is involved. But from a strictly nuts and bolts standpoint, oftentimes – especially I'm thinking middle school and lower, the work that is actually asked of students is not so overbearing that it takes all this time. And again, to be devil's advocate, maybe those kids that weren't doing all this stuff, maybe they can do it easier, quicker, faster, whatever, um, and and get it all done. Well, let let me ask you this, Casey, to your point, Peter. Can we agree that there are things about traditional schools – that don't serve the needs of the kids you just talked about? Oh, 100%. Could schools potentially be part of the problem, why they don't achieve? I agree. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we have the opportunity to try to do it differently. And I'm not, I'm not doubting that. And I know that I, I started off on a dour note. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of kids that are students of color specifically and students of low uh, socioeconomic background who – a are not getting regular meals. B are not getting the structure and 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 the positive relationships. A lot of times with the the adults that surround them in schools, that they would get every day the positive reinforcement, the the positive relationships that they're building with their their classmates and their teachers. So I, I just think the forces that are already against students as they're in a, you know a traditional school environment are just going to be exacerbated when they're not there. No, I, I, I mean, I tend to agree with that. I just, I mean, I, my guess is, it, is that there are smart people in this emergency situation that are thinking very carefully about how to design what they do to, 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 to meet those kids' needs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes and no. I mean, yeah, they are thinking very carefully about it, but it's also on a super compressed time frame. Uh, yeah, I mean? it, it is, but I mean, you got to work within the context that you're you're in. Yeah, um, yeah, we're in a right, we're so literally in a pandemic. So, and, like, and let me and let it, me just say, you know, one thing though, in all this that that is particularly concerning to me is um, early early elementary school, as you mentioned. So, and it's you know, it's much more hits home to me because I have a first grader and a pre K four. 
But all those early literacy skills, the early math skills, and really in preschool, um, the, the socialization, the figuring out how to work with um, other students and to work through conflict. I mean, all that is so important. And even my daughter, who's almost two at daycare, um, you know, she's now was taken from this environment where she had all this freedom and like did all this stuff and, you know, was around all these kids. And it's like, now she's only around us all the time. And I'm, I'm very concerned about the long-term consequences of that for all of those kids. And, you know, kids are pretty pliable and bounce back, but, um, you know, especially some of that early learning and those early building blocks, uh, you know, that, that really worries me. And that is not going to be taken up by online learning for kids of that age. Right. I, I agree. I mean, I think the elementary piece of this, um, having been an elementary principal, the, 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 that would be my greatest concern. Uh, you know, the elementary school is such an important organization for socializing kids and communities. And to lose that um, is going gonna, is gonna to have a significant impact. My, my sister is a kindergarten teacher at a fairly highly impacted elementary school, and she's just totally clutched about not having access to her five-year-olds. Oh yeah. And, and that, you know, that March 13th, when she said goodbye to them that day, she said it was just, you know, traumatic. Yeah. They, they were walking out of there as, as little guys who, um, you know, she, she tries to control so much for them in the classroom and move them along. And they make so much progress when they're that little. Right. And, and then to have that jeopardized is really, um, I mean, that there, there is going to be a trauma piece involved in this. I mean, there's sure. something called trauma informed instruction and, um, school systems are going to have to account for that loss. I mean, we know that there's something called summer slide, right? right. I mean, the research is out there. Um, and to your point, Casey, that impacts kids, um, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds significantly more. Right. Uh, than kids that have certain advantages. So um, let's let's talk about. I would also like to mention about the you know if you if you follow people you know your family and friends on social media and Instagram and and Twitter you see all the pictures of day four. Check out my my child's schedule that I'm teaching. I'm homeschooling. Um, one thing uh, that gave me uh, some positive vibes was. The amount of people by like day three or four that was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely thought this would be a lot easier, but it's proving to be much challenge, much more challenging than I ever expected. You know, thank a teacher if you see them. We should be paying them more. And I was like, oh, that's good. That's, that makes me feel good. And yeah, then the other piece was – the other piece that I thought was interesting is – or I, I've been thinking a lot about not because I'm practicing it, but, to, you know, as someone who loves structure in my own classroom – I wonder to what extent we should be pushing that on uh, kids all the time when they're at home trying to cope with and understand the fact that we are in the middle of a, of a, of a true global humanity crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think, there's a, I think there's a balance there. I mean, I have, you know, you have a newborn. Grable's got kids in their early development and I've got, I've got preteens and teenagers and I, you know, my preteen and teenager are fairly resilient and, um, you know, 
go along to get along with the parameters that we've set about social distancing, um, only being able to play with a limited number of friends outside. And we know who those friends have been in contact with. And I have to say, you know, each day it's kind of a beautiful thing when they finally log in and they're in separate rooms <laughs> and they're, and they're working independently. You know, my son is doing his honors chem work online and, and looking at tutorials and, and my, my daughter is reading and, and answering questions. I'm like, okay. Are they, are I, they, are they responding positively to the, to the things that you're trying to implement? Yeah, they've been, they've been pretty good about it. Now, you know, they, they have a limit. Um, I had big, I had a big idea that we were going to go from 10 to two thirty every day with a half an hour for lunch. And that, that went by the wayside after day one. The contractually obligated break. Yeah. So, um, so what have you, like, what have you shifted to? Uh, if we get two hours, we're good. Yeah. Two, two solid hours, but that's the Crable's two hour theory. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, didn't you just say that kids can do a lot of work in two hours? Yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. And when you think about it, and I, I you know, I, I know this from doing so many observations over the years, you think about the amount of wasted time in a classroom. Yeah. Just from managing 30 to 35 kids, you know, the, who knows how much, like, whom, how much learning actually goes on during a particular class period. I don't know. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> so the 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 get out of the topic question aren't you ready yes all right and we don't have much time on it because we we've got to go to break but here's this inflection point this opportunity to set up distance learning let's say for the to the end of the school year to finish the 1920 school year do you Try to lock kids every day, distance learning into some highly structured Mr. Siddons-like routine of you've got to log in at 8 and then log in at 9 and then log in at 10 and your teacher's going to be waiting there. Or do you blow this thing up? Why try to recreate a brick-and-mortar school and, and, and let kids you know, access the content, complete the assignments when they're, when they're due, um, check in with teachers when – they can when teachers provide those office hours, if you will, one extreme to the other. What do you guys, how, how would you do it? If you could do it, blow it up, blow it up. Okay. Why? I, I, I will take issue. I, I'm going to take umbrage with your, <laughs> with your, uh, impugning me as some, as some hyper-structured teacher in all aspects of my life, which is marginally true. Uh, but in, in the context of a, of a, uh, 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 an environment that requires structure because you're you're operating from a traditional standpoint from years and years ago. I think it's imperative to have a certain amount of structure. So that being said, it's time to blow it up and and do it differently. You know, just, kids might not be ready at eight in the morning. They might not be ready at ten, but they might not be ready until seven. It just doesn't make sense to try and recreate, as you said, the brick and mortar schoolhouse outside of the schoolhouse. Right. You know, um, certainly we've talked about tweaks and changes and modifications within the schoolhouse that we would like to see. Right. But recreating that whole experience outside, it just, it's to me, it's nonsensical and kind of a non-starter. Yeah. Just there's too much going on. There's too much, un, too many unknowns, too many stresses. We're in a truly extraordinary, hopefully once in a lifetime, 
um, type opportunity or type situation. Um, so don't don't just recreate it. You know, innovate. Think of something new. Try something different because right. it's going to be different no matter what. And at the end of the day, there are, there are needs that kids have to attend to, whether we want to admit it or not. Whether it's looking after their younger siblings or uh, having to do chores around the house or their parents aren't around and they're not able to do it until the end of the day anyway. So we, we need to be flexible because kids need the flexibility and, yeah, what, and their what, families need the flexibility. What if you're an eighth grader and you have two younger siblings and, and both your parents are hospitalized with COVID-19? Yeah. yeah. I mean, th- th- those situations, if, if they haven't happened already, they're, they're going to. Happen. Yeah. Um, you work in a grocery store. You know what I mean? Yep. Like you can't take off. You're an hourly worker. Right. You can't take off and just hang out with your kids and make sure that they're doing their schoolwork. I right. mean, you know, there's a lot of things that come into play that just don't make it realistic to try and yeah. do the same thing. All right, folks, um, send us your ideas uh, on Twitter uh, at Ed's Not Dead PC. We'd love your ideas about distance learning. Uh, this is obviously going to be a, a, a topic that we're going to cycle through on future shows. Uh, don't go away when we come back, Mr. Sids. You got a little Dear Betsy? Yeah. Dear Betsy. We haven't talked about her in a while. Is she trying to lead during the uh, pandemic? Oh, absolutely. All right. When we come back, we'll we'll do a new a new installment of Dear Betsy. Thanks for joining us. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mr. C.H. Siddons and Mr. Crable. Mm-hmm. You're still yeah. Here. We decided still to stick around. Still doing this virtual podcast. We got, can... an ex- we got an extension from our deadline from Zoom. Oh, that's nice. Zoom Zoom has been a very supportive platform of, of the first installment of Virtual Ed's Not Dead. They have. You should have tagged them in that tweet. Ooh. Oh, that was a missed opportunity in M.O. M.O. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can find END at Ed's Not Dead PC or check us out at the website, ednotdead.com. Before we get into Dear Betsy, Mr. Siddons, I was thinking about our dear friend, 1T. Have you been in touch with him? We haven't crank called him in a long time. We could do that on a future show virtually. How's he doing? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know, but he's he's been very active on Twitter. Has he? Uh, on the Twitter sphere, just retweeting. He's not he's not creating his own content. He's just retweeting people, and I'm seeing it through. So I, I let me back up a little bit. I unfollowed many political figures and news people and stuff to try to kind of uh, kind of cushion myself from the day-to-day news of this administration and the terrible things that are happening. And uh, his retweeting brings it to the fore on the hour, every hour, every <laughs> single day for the past, I don't know, three weeks. And I'm as we're talking about it, I'm just realizing that I need to mute him. Is it is? Do you think one T? I mean, it's funny. It's almost like he's being passive aggressive towards you, which wouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> I don't think he's doing it to 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 to, Casey. to me. I think he's just doing it for his own catharsis. Maybe I don't know. All right, 
Dear Betsy, Betsy DeVos has a problem with numbers. So have you all read I, – I don't know if you've all read this article, but it was recently posted in the, in the post uh, written by Valerie Strauss uh, early – the early first week of March or so. Um, but the, the, the title of the article really caught my eye where she has a problem with numbers, which is ironic considering she's the uh, Secretary of Education. Have you all watched her any of her testimonies or any kind of times where she's actually interviewed and, and pushed on questions on the Hill? Yeah, I've seen yeah, we've seen some of them. We've yeah. watched some of them together, I think. It's it's pretty cringeworthy, as you can, I she, think you all She's agree. not exactly nimble, as they say, when she's questioned. Yeah, it, it seems like every time she's questioned, there, there's a, 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 a very large amount of, uh, I should say, a very lack of preparedness on her behalf. Um, now, some, to be sure, some of the questions that are asked are, are from are partisan in a lot of ways. But um, one of the things that she talked about in this in this testimony was that there are one million students on waiting lists at charter schools throughout the country, and um, basically she used this statistic to show that there's an enormous demand for these charter schools, which are publicly funded but privately operated. Um, and that's why she's saying that charter schools should be encouraged. But the one million figure is is really not accurate, um, and it's not really sh- clear how many people are actually on waiting lists throughout the country. And when pushed on it, she says that these reports are, de- are, are propaganda and that she says that they've been debunked. She doesn't say by whom or why it's propaganda. But um, we're going to put this link into our show notes for you all to take a look at. Um, but what do you all think about the, the the waiting list that Betsy DeVos likes to talk about? Yeah, I looked at the at the article that you sent over and, you know, the organization, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools first made the claim, but then they quickly reduced the number to 520,000 students on waiting lists because they found redundant students. They found right. um, students that didn't actually want to leave their school. They were just like, yeah, whatever, I just put my name on it. Um, and then students who had been on waiting lists for years and years and years and like right. didn't even know that they were on waiting lists. Uh, but as you were talking, one of the, you know, I was like, well, you know, fi- I mean, 520,000, it's nothing to sniff at. There's a lot of kids on charter schools, uh, charter school waiting lists. But um, just the, the, you know, and I've talked about this before her, she's always on brand and always on message about getting kids out of public schools. Yeah. And I, I, it kind of got me thinking, like, I wonder where does that come from? Like, why does she dislike public schools so much? You know, is it is it a capitalism thing that markets are the best? Is it, uh, you know, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know how she grew up. I mean, certainly now she never sent her kids to public school. I can guarantee you that right. much. I don't know if she went to public schools or she grew up with money or what, but I just wonder, like, why just the consistent animus towards public schools? Um. I, I have no idea, and we need to find that <laughs> out. Maybe, let, that's a, that's our next think piece. Why do Betsy DeVos hates public education? You know what? We'll fill that gap with our own circumspect knowledge. There you go. Um, this, make, up, make up numbers like she does. <laughs> that's by, good. By, perfect. By the way, waiting lists, uh, Mr. Crable, you'll be very familiar with this, that uh, our, our very own dear Washington football team, um, touted its 25-year waiting list for decades. A long time. Uh, when, when, in, when in reality, uh, at one point there was a waiting list, but then it was found to be a, a totally dicey metric, and it wasn't real. 
Right. And, and, and this, this, I mean, these two professors, uh, at the university of Western, Western Michigan and the university of Colorado at Boulder. Um, I mean, they basically based on various factors, external verification, the same students on multiple lists, students that were never removed, uh, found the waiting list to be totally specious. Um, is, is it an attempt to manufacture demand? Yeah. I mean, to answer your question, Crable, I, you know, I mean, I think it's a combination of factors. I, I tend to believe that Betsy DeVos's, um, is driven a lot by faith-based motives. Um, I, I think uh, religion plays a large part in how she sees the world mm-hmm. and um, how she sees schools. And um, I think folks that look through that lens resent the secular approach to schooling yeah, and everything about it um, that they feel like, you know, parents and and parents of faith um, should make decisions based on the faith that they, they belong to. And that, and one of those critical decisions is schools. Yeah. um, And how kids are educated, how their kids are educated. So that would be my total guess about what motivates her. I wonder what she thinks about the, the the state of social studies education and civics education in our schools. Probably Facts. not too happy about them. No. Um, the second number that is cited in this article talks about the NAEP scores, which we talked about uh, two episodes ago, I believe. Um, and according to her, she says that there has been no growth on NAEP scores in the last 20 years and that we've, quote, spent over a trillion dollars at the federal level to close the achievement gap in the last 40 years. But again, that the achievement gap has not closed one bit, which is, as we discussed on the pod uh, in our own time, that is actually not accurate at all. But she continues to throw these debunked um, facts out in front of a congressional subpoena or a congressional uh, panel, which is unfortunate. Um, The gaps are still large. But the achievement gaps between white and black students and white and Hispanic students has been narrowing for decades, although unsteadily, um, which is promising. But it's also sad that she's throwing out these these uh, specious claims. Let's 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 put this into perspective. Okay, a trillion dollars over twenty years is that what you said? Right. Okay, we're about to pump two trillion dollars into the economy over the course of a week, two weeks, a month. Yeah. So although a trillion dollars to you and I seems like a lot of money right. in the context of the money that we are about to spend based on our priorities of what we want to have happen, a trillion dollars ain't squat. Yeah. It's nothing. Over 40 so, years. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like saying, oh, yeah, for 300 million students, we spent a billion dollars. And it's like, well, that's, that doesn't come out to a lot, you know, per child. Right. I, so, I, I, and I think we showed pretty conclusively, right? The, the, re, the data shows that school funding at the local and state level has never recovered since the recession of 2008. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, federal dollars are one thing, but how states have funded maintenance of effort and those kinds of things at the local level, I mean, it's, it's you know, and, and that doesn't even include um, federal and local policy that right. has done no favors for um, in a lot of ways for closing achievement gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's just, that's just her. I mean, the NAEP scores, we agreed, we covered the NAEP scores. They're flat. 
Um, they're not what anybody would want as yeah, far as like to see more growth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, she's obviously simplified the, the reasons for those scores. Yeah, um, it's, a nice, it's a nice talking point for her. Inaccurately. Yeah. All right. What else you got, Mr. Sids? Well, the, the last piece is, is, is an exchange that you need to, I was thinking about playing it on our pod tonight, but I decided to not, to, that it was a little too long, but there is a six minute clip, um, from Betsy DeVos and and Congressperson Pocan, I think he's from um, from Michigan, maybe. Uh, but he he had a, a bunch of really targeted questions to her about how charter schools in the past have used their funding that they've received for for public education. And uh, w- what the article says is that he noted that um, IDEA had planned to spend millions of dollars to, which is I'm sorry. Pocan told DeVos the Texas-based IDEA charter school chain had received more than $200 million from the federal charter schools program and noted that um, they used money to, to lease a private jet. Um, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars for luxury box seats at San Antonio Spurs games. And um, she basically dodged and, and ducked the entire um, set of facts that were played out in front of her and said, she said it was a hypothetical question, but... Basically, uh, Strauss in this article debunks all of all of those facts, which is nice to see in the moment. But it's sad that she can do that on in, in a public eye. Yeah, and that's and I mean I remember when that came out about the the charter school um, in Texas idea that was going to buy you know or did buy or lease the um, the private jet. It's just like come on, man. You know what I mean? And certainly, <laughs> I've been I'm pro charter. I'm interested, but sure. it's like. But you know, if you got to be able to at least recognize some of the downfalls in the system, if sure. you're handing out hundreds of millions of dollars to an organization and they're spending it like that, can't we all agree? Even Betsy DeVos, can't she agree right. that that is not a good use of funds? And and as Doctor Dodd Apparently says, there's, there's enough food at the table, right? But uh, you know, a lot of times we take these stories about public education and people, principals, teachers who are betraying the the public's trust and we 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 paint a broad brush and and i say we the media and betsy devos and people say that this is an example of why public schools are broken whereas it's just one example of a way that people have uh, misled others or uh, misused funds and it's it's important to look at the broader picture let's see let let let's see how i think it's going to be interesting to see how in the in the end analysis, how public schools respond to the current emergency? Yeah, uh, there's there's a good chance that public schools may come out looking like um, an institution in this country that saved kids. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think the cachet of teachers is going to go as we talked a little bit earlier. Up, up, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, last and 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 for our audience, next show. Uh, we're going to tackle a very long and interesting piece in the Washington Post. Charter schools and testing were supposed to save American education. Now they've run out of political steam. What went wrong by Kevin Carey? So we're gonna we're gonna get into yeah, that. absolutely. I, w- I would like to I, I would like to say one positive thing about Betsy DeVos, if we can, if we find good news about um, the DeVos regime, it's worth uh, sharing. Uh, U.S. Secretary of Education DeVos. She authorized, uh, this just came out Friday, suspension of payments 
and 0% interest rate on federal student loans um, during this as a response to the national emergency of COVID-19. So it doesn't apply to private loans, which I think uh, the president and her his cabinet should do something about it in terms of an executive order because there's a lot of private loans out there. But um, it is a good good thing that they're they're stopping the payments for um, federal student loans. Uh, I it's agree. A, it's a it's a basic step towards towards being human. Absolutely. We'll, 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 <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get, take get in there slowly. All right. Yep. To get out get out a dodge question on on Secretary DeVos. Ready. Let's do it. Is she going to make it through the full four years? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, she, she's, well, she she's enough of a, a of a sycophant that uh, it won't it won't. She's not going anywhere. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. She'll be one of two cabinet members to survive all four years. Is that, that would right? be Doctor Carson, Carson and yep. uh, DeVos and, and Miss DeVos. Which Doctor Carson? He's he's the head of uh, Health and Human Services, right? Uh, oh wait! Uh, oh wait! Housing, housing oh right, housing. <laughs> yes, because a, he's a surge, a brain surgeon. Got it. Okay, got it. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. It's almost time to sign off, boys. Uh, what else do you have for the audience before we wrap up the show? Uh, nothing. This was not nearly as horrible as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> You, Mr. Crable, I've been watching you on your phone for the last five minutes. Have you been looking at something interesting? Be, be in the moment. <laughs> I have been engaged. Are you following? Because Casey just tweeted. Uh, the, the, I, yeah, I looked at that, but then my wife was texting me about throwing something away, and she said they're not trash. And I said, I know it's recycling. <laughs> we you're, you're getting you're getting harangued by your wife while you while you're on the I podcast. Am. I am yes. Uh, Mr. Crable, did you you had uh, big aspirations a week ago when we went into the school closure that you were going to plant your garden? Have you done that? No, I threw my back out like earlier this week. God. Yeah, it's a it's an old man problem. So my kids were like, "We want to chase you," and I was like, "Okay." And so I was like bobbing and weaving to try and get away from them, and just like crack. There you go, done for. So I did I did plant some nice lettuces and arugula this afternoon oh. it's going to be very rainy the next two weeks so i figured it's a good time to to get some of that in yes it is all right well to our audience um please be well and stay safe and practice social distancing and all the other guidelines that states and the federal government are are handing down to us to get through this crisis um i'm glad that we've had this time boys to reconnect and yeah it's fun put out another episode of END. You can find END as always at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter. Visit the website, edsnotdead.com. I'm sure with the time that we have, we should be posting blogs, none of which we've done, the three of us. It's impossible to get anything done with children at home. <laughs> Let me just say that. Like, literally impossible. It is It is pretty tough. Mr. Mr. Siddons, child is still in the larval stage so he does not have any excuse for <laughs> he has no excuses yeah uh, I, like, i'm i'm working in, be- in between the naps it's been <laughs> nice I, I did some yard work today i'm i'm painting the stairs tomorrow boop, 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 boop. make sure your employer doesn't find out about that <laughs> what do you mean i'm on emergency leave buddy oh this is true all right listen i'm on the i'm low man on the totem pole i got i got i got i got a lateral here 
All right. As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. Thanks for joining us, folks. We'll be back soon. Take care of yourselves. Have a great night.